Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Talk Recorded live. Good evening. Sit back and enjoy an hour of Bigfoot Radio with callers and guests. It's the Bigfoot Field Guide Radio Show with your hosts, Sharon and Dre. Join us as we talk about everything Bigfoot. Sponsored by the Mid-America Bigfoot Research Center. Now, here are your hosts, Sharon and Dre. Good evening and welcome to the July 16th show of the Bigfoot Field Guide Radio Show. I am Sharon Lee along with Jeff I don't want to say your last name, Jay Sooner on the MABRC. Hi, Jeff. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing real good. How are you doing tonight, Sharon? You know, I'm sort of, I think I'm doing a little bit better than you guys down in Texas because I hear that you've had over, what, 15, 16 days with over 100-degree temperatures? Yeah, we had, I, th- I believe it was close to, yeah, close to 16 days, Um that were over 100, and then we went for a while there. We went 21 days with no rain. So it's been it's been pretty uh, pretty hot and humid down here in South Texas. Oh. Absolutely. You guys are going crazy out there down in the heat. Absolutely, yeah. It's not a good time to be out in the woods unless you're hardcore, you know. Yeah, unless you have one of those mosquito devices that, like, with the sonic radar that zaps all the mosquitoes away from you. Yeah, I I have not tried that, but I tell you what, if I was going out, it might not be a bad idea. Yeah, I have a buddy in Louisiana who has one of those, and he says it works, but he has to replace that card constantly. So it's it's, it's a lot of work, but it's worth it when you do get it. So now, so, um, if if Jeff is right, you got to be hardcore to be out in this weather. So I guess me and Squatch Finder was hardcore because we was out all weekend doing research. Yeah, and then and. and Absolutely, yeah. You have stuff going on over there, don't you, DW? Yeah, yeah, we got lots of good stuff going on right at the moment. Yeah, I, you know, my research area has come to a standstill because I don't know if it's because of the, the radio show or people reading our stories on the MABRC, but my research area is overrun with people. There are people, I mean, I can't even walk over there with people, and I just know that there's no activity going on right now because of the, the constant human activity in the area. And it's really, it's frustrating. You know, I can't blame the people for wanting to be there, but, you know, it's like, Ding, it's my research area, get out. You know? <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, so we've talked about the weather, we've talked about research areas, and anyway, we're going to go over to Jeff, my buddy Jay Sooner in Texas, and he's going to talk to us about the Researcher's Corner. Okay, let me play his intro. Hey, good evening, everybody. Thanks for the intro uh, intro there, Darren. Tonight, in the researcher's corner, um, what I wanted to talk about is a little bit of news um, for not only for junior researchers, but for people that have been in the field, 
Um, there's a there's an individual whom I I, I got to admit right off the bat I haven't met him, um, but you know as you go through your daily cyclic review of websites and uh, places where you get your information from, um, one of the people that I look at is an individual that posts various videos on YouTube called the First Billy Jack, and I've been um, you know, kind of reviewing his material. I've never met the individual, never interviewed him. But just from the perspective of uh, looking at the latest videos, um, I wanted to point out to, to the people that are new and, and hopefully get some comments on the forums from the people that have been out in the field um, on some things to look at as to why uh, people who are credible, like scientists and university professors, um, tend to uh, sometimes view what we do as, as very novice researchers and if people that don't have the scientific background tend to view some of the things that we do as you know not legitimate or uh, view us in not the best light in terms of what we're bringing to the table in, in terms of evidence. And, and um, first of all, I just want to say that, that what I'm saying is not at all um, saying that what the first Billy Jack is doing um, is not credible at all. But I just wanted to point out some things to look at. If, if you're looking at his latest videos, this week I was looking at him and it was um, uh, some tree knocking. He had posted a video where I think he set his camera up, um, and I'm just going by what I looked at in the video, um, on a tripod, and then uh, he walked off and there was you know, some noises recorded. Um, you heard some branches breaking, uh, which was in the description it was termed as something that he thought may have been behind the camera when he had moved off. And then he came back and did some wood knocks. And you heard some wood knocks. Well, to, to somebody like you know, Dr. Meldrum when they view that, or if you take that and, and scientists view that, you know, the first thing they say is, where's the, how do you validate something like that? Um, we don't know when he got there or arrived there if he was alone. Um, we don't know any of the extenuating circumstances on how he got there, what that, where that research area is, who's with him, how is he documenting everything. And so what you have is a video um, of just him and there's other there's other videos that he's obviously posted that that can be debated at a light, light, later time. But um, just for people who are going out in the woods, keep be very cognizant of when you begin to video, um, because a couple of things that I looked at and pointed and thought about immediately was okay, let's look at the nature of the video and and what was recorded. Um, apparently, there were some wood knocks recorded. Well. We don't know. We're going just by the first Billy Jack. And for all we know, it could have been very legitimate. But for a scientist that requires the hard proof of the behavior of, this, of these creatures, and it needs to be documented and recorded more than once and heard by numerous sources, we don't know if that was, if those were really wood knocks that he recorded or if the sounds that were behind the camera were of somebody that was with him or somebody that wasn't with him. Um, and so that's kind of just some things to point out, um, you know, when you take your video camera out and you're like, you know, I'm going to document everything and video record it, 
you know, there's a number of things that we do at the MABRC to, to ensure um, that before we go out and do that, um, there's, a, there's a means of legitimacy, and, and you can read about those obviously on our forums if you become a member, and I'm sure that other organizations have um, protocols for all that. But, um, you know, on the, on the bright spot, bright side of this, so to speak, if all those videos are very substantial and um, genuine, then that's, that's some pretty amazing material. I'd actually like to have have them on the show if we get get a chance. But that was just my researcher's corner tonight was to look at that kind of stuff and and always come back and look at it from a very skeptical eye. If you were uh, a professor or somebody that you know we were going to present evidence to, how would you look at that? Um, always be skeptical of yourself and, and try to look at what you're doing with that type of an eye. And, and if I think if you go about your research as if somebody like Dr. Jeff Meldrum, uh, John Green, somebody was standing behind you as you did everything and was watching over you, I think that you pretty much, you know, you'd, you'd err on the, on the side of being correct. Uh, more so than um, you know than just being you know argue, argued with constantly. So that's in a nutshell. That's what I wanted to just cover quickly in the researchers' corner. Darren, do you, do you or Sharon have any comments on on any of that? I do. Um, John Kyright said, "How do we know that any wood knots are legit? And has anyone seen a Bigfoot knot?" Which was um, when we I was listening to a radio show this past week. And um, this one guy said that he, he saw a Bigfoot drilling a hole into the ground. And I asked him later, I, I finally got my question answered. I said, well, how do you, what was he drilling with? Was he drilling with a tool? Was he drilling you know, with his finger? What was he doing? And he, well, the, the answer that he gave me was pretty comical because we didn't expect it. He said that the the Bigfoot was urinating into the ground, drilling a hole. And that's not what we wanted. But I had John Cartwright just asked the question, how do we know that wood knots are legitimate? Have we ever seen them use a tool or use another you know, piece of equipment to, to make these sounds? And um, I, don't, I don't believe that anyone has ever seen a Bigfoot actually pick up a branch take it, and knock it against a tree to make the wood knots. We're only assuming that these wood knots are coming from Bigfoot. Um, I've got woodpeckers in my tree in the backyard. I know the sounds that they make. I, I can't imagine any other animal being able to pick up a branch or a, a log and hit it against a tree. So, you know, as far as everything, it's speculation. There are people who say they have habituation situations where they have these creatures, they can see them doing these things, but I don't think anyone has ever documented it. So, it's, again, in this research, it's all new to us. And we're going on assumptions. Absolutely, and John's right. I mean, and, and Sharon, you're absolutely right as well. Um, I I went back and, and tried to read some of my notes and some of the reports that I that I file, and I couldn't find a documented like sighting of someone seeing a woodknock. Now, I will say that that in Hanobi last October, um, when there was just six of us up in the mountains at a campsite. You know, we would knocked, and we had returns, and 
you know, or we heard return wood knocks. Now, I can't tell you what that was because I didn't see the animal right. or anything make that sound. What I can say from from my perception is based on the remoteness of where we were in terms of um, if you were to come to that place and look at those mountains and and look at and be able to observe what the the population is there it was it was hard for me to believe that there were other people you know within a mile just hanging out um, in the mountains with no other campsite and no other roads that were planning to wood knock back to us does that you know does that um, say that it wasn't people no it does not um, but you know, hearing the wood knock at two and three in the morning, um, you, you sit there and you go, "Okay, I, how do I, how do I process this?" But no, John, that was a very good question. Yeah, you don't know. You, you just don't know. You don't and know. When when we were at Hanobi um, a couple months ago, it's just like when we had gone out into the woods at night. It's like we're walking for a mile, maybe mile and a half, and we know that there's nobody else out there. There's no one. We can verify that there is no human out there, but if we do even get the audio, there's going to be the skeptics that say, oh, that was someone else out in the woods, you know, hoaxing you, or maybe someone else did it. But we know in our hearts, as being out there in the woods, that there was no one else out there to do that. Yeah, and, you know, as you look at the YouTube videos that the first Billy Jack posts, Let's go back to how much of was the PG, you know, film, how much was that scrutinized over the last 30 years? How much has it been scrutinized over, you know, the last two or three years? I mean, heavy, heavy breakdown scrutiny by a vast number of resources. Now, understanding that that is um, the film of a supposed animal and not um, – you know, just the sound of wood knocks, you know, that that's different, of course, but, you know, nobody's scrutinized or there's no legitimacy that the first Billy Jack is bringing into his YouTube video. So anyway, that's, don't want to belabor the point um, anymore, but that was my researcher's corner. And with that said, I'll go right into my, uh, my gear pick of the week. Um, this week, I, you know, I, I'm getting all my ideas for <laughs> from our expedition that we had uh, back in June to, to Ho'Nubby because there was just an opportunity for a lot of good gear. And actually, I talked with Stooge75, and we had just a lot of pieces of equipment we were able to utilize. But for, for, uh, for this week's gear book, it's actually a pack. It's actually a, a, a backpack called the Osprey Ether 70. And um, it's a... The reason that it, it came in so handy was uh, I didn't have a vehicle that could actually get into the mountains, and but I could tow a four-wheeler. And so one of the things we talked about was people going further and further and getting out in more ro remote locations from, you know, from the actual main site. And it, I was, you know, thinking about, well, if you had to do that, you need to have something 
you know, that you can carry the gear that you need, especially if you can't drive a four-wheeler up there. So what I was able to do was to take this Osprey Ether 70, um, which I got from REI, and I actually was able to pack every single thing um, that I needed for those three days to include a tent, food, water, everything. Um, it's got a lot of features on it. It's got, you know, obviously a lot of side pockets, hip belt, the harness loops, you know, lots of compartments. It's got sleeping pad straps. Um, it comes in different sizes, and REI will definitely fit it to you. It's very inexpensive. I got it on sale for, I believe it was less than $200, and it can pack up to about 65 to 70 pounds of gear. Oh. And I was I was really shocked when I got this piece of equipment because I used to have um, – you know, my experience in the Army, we just, Darren can speak to this, we just had huge green rucksacks, and you packed everything in it, and they weren't really designed for comfort, and they weren't designed for long distances. And when I put this thing on, I mean, I could have gone, uh, you know, could have gone a number of miles very, very comfortably. So the Osprey uh, Ether 70 is, uh, is my gear pick, pick of the week. Oh, awesome. But after lugging 70 pounds worth of stuff, you can only probably go only about 100 yards. <laughs> you know, know, it was – I obviously didn't have to go over three or four miles, but, you know, I I carried it up there, and it just it wasn't a problem at all. It was good. Good to go. Yeah. yeah. Did you use that in Hanobi when we were there in June? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. where I got it from. Awesome. All right, so that was Jeff's gear pick of the week, and it will be posted on the MADRC on his uh, blog there. And um, Jeff, I think you're going to ask DW about something that he's been working on. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we usually at this segment do um, an interview of one of the researchers, but this week we're gonna we're gonna do something special because I think Darren's been investigating kind of a uh, an interesting um, some interesting activity and he's been investigating a report so we're gonna get to the highlight of one of those reports but Darren let's let's go into kind of give us a brief background on uh, what this uh, the background of this report and this um, activity is and then kind of go right into the incident. Um, Oh, okay. That, uh, that we want to go into. So, kind of give us a short background first on what exactly is the background of why and how this happened. Well, uh, this year alone, they have had uh, three separate sightings of uh, bipedal creatures. I mean, if you ask the land owners, they'll tell you straight up they saw a Bigfoot. Uh, but this year alone, they've had three separate sightings. And they had contacted us uh, through a driver operator because they had run into him at a local uh, restaurant here in my area when he was down uh, researching with me. And uh, so we went out there and we checked out the area. And, of course, the report is on the, the form along with a lot of pictures and stuff. Uh, so uh, we uh, we went and decided that we're going to start researching this area since the sightings were pretty pretty recent. And uh, so me and Cherokee Rose and the landowners went out and set up a listening post in the middle of this 80-acre field where uh, 
where one of the sightings occurred. And, you know, the thing was we was hoping that uh, we could at least get them to come out in the field enough that we could see them. Uh, so we sat there for, uh, to be honest with you, I'm, it's kind of hard on details right now, but about 30 minutes, uh, it started getting dark, and the landowner's wife got hit by the first what we call a grass ball because it was actually grass that had been folded up with more grass wrapped around it. And uh, she thought it was a bug at first. And then she got hit a second time in the foot. And her son picked up a flashlight and was looking, and he noticed that it was this uh, grass balled up. So uh, we we sat there, and she stood up, and we was talking about it. And as we had a light shining on her, we seen the third one come in and hit her in the shoulder and fall right in front of us. So we knew they were being thrown at us then. Uh, so as we set these on our little table there and took a picture of them, I picked up the bionic ear, and when I picked up the bionic ear, uh, one actually hit my bionic ear. And, of course, it sounded like a gun going off in my head because of the bionic ear. And uh, we recovered that, and we, we started bagging these up. And just as soon as I set the bionic ear down, another one hit me in the arm. So I got the night scope, and we looked over the field, and we seen a Bigfoot, well, a large bipedal creature, I'll say, standing in a field about 200 feet away from us. And when I painted it with the infrared LED on my night scope, it went, uh, it went and ducked down, and it didn't get back up. And, of course, I handed the night scope to Cherokee Rose, and she watched it for a while to make sure it didn't get back up, and it never did. So we got hit uh, 11 times in all, and, of course, that's just the times that we counted actually getting hit. There could have been others getting thrown at us that we missed. C.W., um, describe what the grass ball looked like to you. Uh, it was just a, a handful of grass that was bent about four times, three times, you know, just several times. And then more grass was taken and wrapped around it real tight. Like and, uh, of course, the pictures are also on the website and the form. Uh, we finally figured out how to preserve them for Hanobi. We've sprayed them with uh, liquid acrylic. So hopefully they'll be viewable down at Hanobi uh, during the conference. But... Uh, DW, let me let me back up just a second and ask you a couple questions just to kind of kind of establish some things for the listeners and and to establish a couple things for the people in the chat room. I I have been out with you, so I definitely understand how you research and how you go about your business. So for me, I'm I'm good. But as we back up to the to the landowners, were you able to establish fairly quickly? the the legitimacy of the landowners and the and the feeling that you had that what they were experiencing based on your discussions with them um was legitimate yeah um after we started seeing the uh grass balls come in we actually watched the landowners to make sure they didn't you know toss them at each other or toss them at us uh and of course, nobody knew exactly where we was going to be setting up this listening post. Okay. And, and in this field, they have killed quite a few rattlesnakes, uh, six feet and longer. And everybody in this area, you know, they don't go into the woods unless they've got a little 410 or 22 something to shoot the snakes with. 
So the possibility that it was somebody out there crawling, throwing this stuff at us, was pretty slim just based on the fact that there are some pretty good-sized rattlesnakes in this area. What was the the weight of a grass ball? Say if you were to if you were to pick it up and and you know because sometimes things are so light that the actual distance that you can throw them is limited until you get to a to the a, a little bit of a weight like almost like a small rock. Were these things heavy? Were they were they balled up enough and and uh, concentrated enough with material that they were you know several ounces in weight? Uh, were they able to be thrown from a long distance, or what was your estimate estimate on the distance that these were coming from? Well, basically about 25 to 35 feet is how close we figure they were. Uh, wow. And I'll get the, the reason for that here in a second. But the balls, I could actually toss them about 10 feet underhanded, you know, without any real uh, momentum to it. So, uh, and they were hitting fairly hard. I mean, you knew when you got hit. Uh, and after about 45 minutes of this, you know, I was busy trying to collect the evidence, and I decided to grab a flashlight and walk out towards where I thought they were possibly laying at. And mind you, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, well, they just killed all these rattlesnakes out here, so I'm I'm a little nervous to begin with, but... uh I'm ready for a face-to-face. I'm going to walk out there, and hopefully one's going to stand up right in front of me. Uh, what was the distance of the of the individual animal that you saw when it was standing up in the field? What was your estimate on how far that About, about 200 was? feet. So, so when I walked out and started looking in the grass, you could see the trails where something big had crawled up to within about 30 feet of us behind some small trees. And... Uh, you know, about the same time that I was out there looking at these trails, a grass ball was thrown from the opposite side of us. So, you know, there was at least two uh, animals out there in that field with us throwing these grass balls. And, and it and it begs the question, were the grass balls prepared earlier in anticipation of something like this, or were they being prepared well, the- the next day, the, the next day when we had light, we went back out there, and where they had been laying at, I mean, it was, it was actually bigger than me. And most people that have seen me know I'm pretty good sized. Uh, but where they had been laying, we got down and looked, and the grass had been picked. So they had been picking the grass right there and making them in the where they were laying, and then throwing them. Wow. Okay. So. Okay. But, of course, like I said, you know, for everybody that's going to be at uh, the Hanobi Bigfoot Conference in October, we uh, hopefully we preserved three of them enough to, to take them down there and show everybody what they look like. You know, we could almost do an entire show just on <laughs> yeah. your research with this particular area. You know, I, I'm lucky enough, I get to talk to you, Darren, and I get to read the reports on the forums, and so I'm up to date, but, um, you know, and I'm I'm desensitized to the fact that, that the balls hit you and you actually had a, a viewing of one of the animals, but um, to the people that are listening, I'm sure that they would, would love to hear at some point, you know, yeah. the entire situation, because it really is pretty fascinating. So. It is, it really is. Well, folks, Thank usually you. about this time we... uh 
we go into our advertisements and stuff, but I think we've kept Kathy on here on hold long enough. I think we need to go ahead and get her in here and talk to her. What do you all think? Absolutely. I'm ready. Okay, let me get her on here. Kathy, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, Kathy. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. All right. Well, you know, I'm Sharon Lee, and we have um, our co-host here, and Darren is listening in. And this evening we have Kathy Strain, who is our guest. She's an archaeologist, anthropologist, and author. And Kathy has been an anthropologist for over 20 years, and is currently, correct me if I'm wrong, Kathy, but you're currently, are you currently the Forest Heritage Research and Tribal Relations Programs Manager for the Stanislaus National Forest? Correct. You are. You're still doing that. <laughs> yeah, well, I've been here about uh, 11 years. Oh, wow, that's good. And throughout the course of your career, since you began being, um, doing anthropology and archaeology over the past 20 years, you've been conducting the research of the hairy man, is what the Native Americans refer to him as, we will say him. Yes. Correct? Yes, yes. For right. Lisa, I, I, I don't want to add too many years on that because it makes me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a problem. Well, I know that gives you more credibility if you've been doing it for 20 years. <laughs> it's been a long time. It's been a long it's, time. All right, we'll say some years, a few years. <laughs> I want to thank you, first of all, for taking the time to um, update us on your recent activity and be with us here tonight. How are things out in California? Pretty hot. We're, we're just now getting uh, the hot weather that you guys were describing. It's been just a beautiful... Um, spring, early summer, and uh, this has been the first week of over 100 temperature, and so it, it's just been gorgeous, and so when you go from like 80s to all of a sudden 109, it's kind of like too quick, but, but wow. it's been nice yeah. otherwise. I, I like the hot temperatures. Now, have you and Bill gotten out to do any squatching lately? Oh, you mean Bob? Yeah, Bob, I'm sorry. Yeah, Bob. Oh. Um, we actually uh, just, we weren't necessarily bigfooting, quote-unquote, but we were doing some, uh, uh, working on another project of mine because, you know, I am work for the Forest Service and I work with Native Americans a lot. We were doing a project with uh, a group of Native Americans this past weekend, and during that time I actually got a lot of very good interviews in about Native American beliefs in Bigfoot and, and some of the... Um, beliefs that they have um, in general, but but yeah, no, we haven't been out a whole lot this summer because it's been the snow is still where we live. We we live in the bottom of um, the higher mountains, and so all the mountains above us still are holding quite a bit of snow, and so all those back areas that we'd like to get into are just now melting and and becoming open to for us to get into. Wow, so so you're still you still have snow out there. Yeah, we actually, our mountains are pretty high. We we top out at over 10,000 feet. And so the areas that uh, Bob and I do our main research in uh, hover around 8,000. And so um, getting in there, um, straight, because we just haven't had the hot weather, there's still lots of patches. And the U.S. Forest Service doesn't open those roads to the general public, because when I'm bigfooting, I'm the general public, until that snow's gone, because, you know, you could ruin the road and rut it and stuff like that. So those are just now coming all open. I would think those kind of conditions would be conducive to Sasquatch activity. Have you had anything going on? Um, you know, we haven't heard much um, going on at all, because, 
along with this very, very mild weather, um, a lot of the traditional plants that, of course, Native American used and what we would think Bigfoot would also use, you know, the berries and everything, um, haven't started blooming yet because they need um, wow. that high heat to really trigger their system. And so everything just now is getting bloomed. And so this is, this is the perfect time to be out because then you can follow the blooms up the hill and where they probably, how they're moving. So you, in your experience with, with the nature and everything in that area, do you think that the Sasquatch are maybe more south of where you are? More south, did you say? Yeah, into the, yeah south into the warmer climates or whatever. Uh, no, not necessarily. No, I, we have a pretty consistent history um, in this. If you look at a map of California, and I know um, there was something about it on Monster's Quest, I think a couple weeks ago, where it showed the hot spots. Our county is one of those very hot hot spots where we've got a lot of history, a lot of uh, well-known sightings that have happened in this general area. So I, I think they're here year-round, but I think they do move up and down the elevations based on uh, the weather as well as the resources because, you know, the deer herds will pull down during the winter. And they, they we, we're still, my county, I think we only have, I think we have 20,000 people at the most in the entire county. And that's at the most, and then, but the and all of the little tiny, you know, we don't call them cities because none of them are incorporated. They're like little tiny towns, you know. They're okay. very, very small, very clustered to each other, and it leaves all these big, large, forested places around them. And so, um, the deer herds typically come down to those lower elevation um, forested areas, and then they push up higher as the summer gets hot and warm because that's they follow the resources as well up the hill, and that's that's pretty much how Native Americans lived in the West. Is that they pretty much had a lower elevation home that they lived in during the winter, where they'd store stuff. But as the as stuff ripened, they would just follow it up and then come back down. And that's what I see, in my personal opinion, what I think the Bigfoot in this area do as well. It's we're not flat at all. We have we go from I think my house here is at 1,700 feet, and we go all the way up to 10,000 in a very wow. short period of time. You're in a good spot, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it, I used to live up higher, um, way higher up in the mountains, and I could Bigfoot uh, literally a mile from my house. Wow. So I would hear screams from my house. In fact, oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. But I couldn't deal with the snow. I had had enough with the snow. <laughs> I mean, lower. So now, do you get like any? Do people give you reports of sightings in your area that you go out to investigate? Oh yeah, and and a lot of it, strangely enough, actually comes from other Forest Service employees, because they'll be out and about. And you know, a lot of people don't know this that we're we have a lot of patrols. We have fire patrols that go out and make sure people are properly using their campfires because you know, of course, we don't want fires breaking out. And we have recreation techs that go out and make sure our campgrounds are clean and talk to people about where they can ride their uh, OHVs and stuff like that, and they'll get information from those people. They'll say, you know, the strangest thing happened, and, you know, I saw that, and then they come back and they tell me. And so that's actually where the best and quickest um, things I've ever happened, except for one time we were working on restoring a uh, 1800s cabin. It was an old, old cabin in the woods. It's one of the prettiest places I've ever been. And one of the people who came to help us that very morning had gotten a phone call 
from his sister-in-law telling him about an experience they had had literally just a couple days before. And so that was like almost unbelievably amazing because I got the phone number and I went home and I called him and and it was just barely, you know, days old. And he interviewed her? Yeah, I interviewed the family. You found them all believable and... Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, they were um, just forthright on, they didn't try to make any kind of, you know, judgment on what they had seen. They just said, this is what happened, and, you know, we don't know what to think about it, but it's kind of cool. So, Tell us what happened. Tell us. I'm curious now. Um, well, this was, um, at, there's a place up here called Strawberry, California, and it's just, you know, right at the top of the mountain where all the recreation stuff, we kind of have everything centered in certain places. So you have, like, uh, a lake where a lot of people go, and then you have just thousands and thousands of acres where nobody goes and this family had been going up um the road to go camping up a little higher when i think it was like at two o'clock in the morning a bigfoot walked across the road and then with one hand jumped over a uh bridge that and the fall is pretty good you know i know this area pretty well i mean i wouldn't do it in the daytime let alone and at night <laughs> And it just kind of hopped over, and it wasn't in any hurry. It, it, the headlights had shined on it. It kind of acknowledged, oh, yeah, you're driving by, but was in no rush just to walk over. Wow. And, and so this was an area, it was three of them. It was a husband, wife, and the kid. And uh, this area in particular has, it's so well known for its Bigfoot sightings that um, it, it has a statue of a Bigfoot outside the main store where you oh. can go in and report at your sighting, and then they, they funnel them down to me. So. Oh, and, it's pretty cool. That is cool. God, I wish I had that over here. <laughs> yeah, it's nice that you you got to go around and talk to everybody and, and kind of, you know, try to make yourself, you know, the one to go to when they get stuff. Because people, people tend to, right after the event, want to talk about it, but as time passes, it isn't necessarily as easy to get information out of them or for them to make an effort to go, you know, on the Internet and find somebody to tell this about yeah, and if you make yourself available, you out yourself out of the Bigfoot closet and everybody knows, hey, tell Kathy your story, then you've yeah. got it pretty good there. <laughs> yeah, especially with Federal Forest Service employees because there's actually quite a few that have had some pretty incredible experiences um, that they probably would never tell anybody except another fellow um, Forest Service employee because... Exactly. Yeah. Somebody they know is going to, like, not look at them and say, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Well, this past week I've been reading your book, Giants, Cannibals, and Monsters, Bigfoot in Native Culture. And I started reading these stories, and I was just like, every story I read was just like, wow, these people were doing this so long ago. And to me, nowadays, it's kind of like when people tell their story nowadays, it's kind of unbelievable you know, I mean, they talk about these creatures flying off into the air with babies and stuff like that. And um, I just was wondering, like, throughout your research, and approximately how long ago was the first Native American, like, documentation of the Bigfoot or hairy man creature? Well, probably, um, and just to go into a brief explanation, when, of course, you're talking about the North America, including, you know, Canada and Alaska and what we call, you know, the United States of America. Um, as European influence, you know, as people came here to settle, um, some of the tribes that are closest to where that first stuff started happening were more devastated in the sense of, of being broken up, 
and losing a lot of information that wasn't recorded because there wasn't an interest in that. And as settlers kind of came more towards the West, there became more of a sensitivity that a lot of this information was being lost and that somebody needed to be out there gathering information. And so there was a big push in the late 1800s to try to at least photograph these cultures, try to record things that were important to them, and then, you know, at least write down things that these tribes felt were important. And so the earliest stuff that I know about is uh, actually the cover of my book is the Harry Man pictographs. And there are photographs of that from the very late 1800s. Uh, I'm going to say like 1886 or 1888. The, the date, specific date eludes me. But where they photographed it and where they asked the, the, the Tule River people, you know, what is this? And they told them what it was. And so uh, the earliest recorded Bigfoot story that I found that never has been presented to the public was about 1909. And so most of what I tried to do is get that old stuff. I wasn't as interested in modern sightings by Native Americans um, because that's, you know, equivalent with any kind of witness story. What I wanted to know was what does that Native American tribe believe that Bigfoot is and, you know, what characteristics does he have? And, and yeah, I know that there's things in there where the Bigfoot talks and, you know, he does all these kinds of things, but you have to put it in perspective with what their other legends are that, you know, eagle talks, um, coyote talks, that's all their characters talk that just makes a better story. I mean, it's kind of boring if you say, well, Bigfoot did this and Bigfoot did that. It's better when it says the Bigfoot talks and explains himself on what it is that he's doing. And the other interesting part about this is to remember that what you're seeing in the book is um, what was captured at that time as a story that had been told probably for hundreds of years. And so when they first started telling the story, this was, you know, you're now at the end of a, of a long action film, you know, and so you're getting that piece. You don't necessarily have what, how you got here and what caused all that stuff like you would in the beginning of the film. You're, you're kind of at the end of it. And so you have to judge it by that, that there's information we don't know because, you know, this is the end of the story and they expected you to already know. And there's explanations of why, you know, we. I, I, that's one of the questions I never quite get answered of, why does the Bigfoot steal children and eat them? What, what, How did that come to be and all that stuff? I never get that answered because they, you know, it's not in the in the documentation. It just, by the time you get it written down in the 1800s, it just is. And, and you no longer get the, because he's hungry or we taste great or, you know, what? You know, that's part part of just what you get. Well, with your research, you're talking about, like, the um, the sounds that they made. Like, a lot of controversy nowadays is that, oh, a Bigfoot doesn't imitate a coyote, an Im- a Bigfoot doesn't imitate an owl. But back to these stories, he kind of does. He kind of morphs into these creatures, these other creatures. What is your feeling on that? Um, well, he doesn't morph into other creatures. I mean, a Bigfoot doesn't change himself. Uh, oh, into, yeah, I'm sorry. Not yeah. like bodily. But. <laughs> no, but he, but he's he's in tune with other creatures. But he, when Bigfoot's Bigfoot, he's just Bigfoot. He doesn't have the ability to shape shift or to do other things. But he can be, and that's kind of hard to always explain, of the physical Bigfoot versus a spiritual Bigfoot because all animals have that 
piece of you just like humans do. It's it's that's often very difficult to explain. Um, but yeah, and and you were speaking earlier about wood knocks and grass balls and all that stuff. And and one of the important things that I have always enjoyed about those old stories is that they talk about that stuff. They talk about when you see a tree trunk or a tree branch that's twisted and laid over, that they say that's Bigfoot sign. You know, when you have rocks thrown at you, that's Bigfoot sign. You know, when you hear very loud screams out in the woods, then you know they're around. That's what they do. And so it isn't something that uh, I believe our culture has made up. Now, whether we necessarily have eyewitnesses to all that, I mean, um, I was trying to think. I think there is indeed a scream and wood breaking witness that was on Quantico in Virginia where the individual, he was a Marine who witnessed um, a, a Bigfoot literally screaming and, and I think um, doing a wood knock, and I, and I can't quite remember all the details, but at least hitting hitting a tree really super hard in, in protest that these Marines are in the area. Um, but it isn't something necessarily that, that our culture is just making up. Oh, we decided yesterday that Bigfoot wood knocks. I, that's not at all where that's come from. I think there's been a long history of at least people who are familiar with the land being Native Americans and maybe early uh, settlers, miners, all that thing, that have long associated those behaviors with Bigfoot activity. That is amazing. And and the thing that the Native Americans were better trackers than any of us in the 21st century are ever going to be, you know, sitting behind our computers and, and going to work every day in a car. So for them to say that something is out there Hearing, you know, making the same sounds that we're hearing these days, you think it's safe to say that this is the same type of creature? Oh, I would say so. And and it's, um, you know, an example of when I used to work on the Tule River Indian Reservation, where I started out as an archaeologist um, uh, in Porterville, California. Well, I probably not literally started. I guess I had did a few things prior to that, but that's where my first, like, you know, full-time paying job was. And I would go talk to the tribal elders. We were doing a project, and they would tell me all the time, you know, you're here, you know, we're we're going to escort you to your car at nighttime. Um, if you hear whistling, just don't go outside. And I'd go, what? You know, what, what has whistling got to do with anything? And they'd say, well, just because. And I got to learn that that was a Bigfoot trying to lure me outside. And I'd oh, go, well, what if I go outside? And they'd go, don't go outside. And I'd go, well, what's going to happen? And they just would never tell you. It's just like, you just don't go outside. Okay, great. Go to other tribes, they tell you the same thing. You know, don't go outside if you hear whistling because that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to lure you outside and it's not going to be good. Okay. And you just do what to, what you're told to do because you're on, you know, their reservation. You're supposed to be respectful. I always, list, you know, always did what I was told, but I never heard any whistling in those situations yeah. myself. but And it's what funny is- how, you know, one time I met up with a lady over in Felton, California, and she had happened to have worked for the Miwok tribe here that's local to me, and she's relating that same information to me, and I'm going, well, I'm glad I wasn't the only one that was told that. But but it's, you know, we associate whistling with Bigfoot, and here Native Americans are, are also doing that. And I think that came from people working with Native people and those people saying, let me give you some advice. This is what they do. You're going to get stolen or whatever's going to happen to you. And 
So don't go outside when it's whistling. Well, that's where, where that's you being, Kathy, when you were when they were telling you don't go outside. Were you were you work where were you actually working? Like when you were inside, when they would tell you this, we would be like in different. Well, a lot of times in homes, personal homes, and a lot of those those areas. And I, you know, it's kind of difficult to talk about. We're really sure, sure. Um, poor, and so the the restroom facilities were still often outhouses, and so often when you would step outside, um, so things would happen. We triggered. And I I never experienced it, but I know that I had been in the presence where I was inside talking with elders and recording information when uh, a a daughter had stepped outside and she rushed back in and she said, oh, they're here, we all need to hunker down, it'll be gone in a little bit. And and talking so fast sometimes that you couldn't quite keep up with what was going on, but just finally going, oh, this is what they're talking about. And, And, you know, and it's always hard to convey that in the sense of, that they perfectly believe that this animal exists. They're no different than coyote. They're no different than bear. They're no different than eagle. And so when you kind of get into that and they totally understand that you believe everything that they're saying and that you are a believer as well, it, 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 the, the doors kind of open, those veils kind of come down, and they're just themselves, which is what wow. you're seeing. And so being a part of that, you know, I'd always had an interest in Bigfoot when I was a child. I loved, you know, all of, everything that, that it was about. But being in the presence of that and seeing people so open and telling you and, and kind of basically um, verifying what I thought to be true but really getting it from the, the beginning, that made a huge impact on me as a researcher and as a person and what I wanted to do in my life. And so it's I, and it, and it's hard, you know, I can't say everything that I know that was given to me in those times because it's still very personal and very raw, but sure. but that's part of you know who they are. They, there's just no um, it, when you talk to a native person, you look at them in the eye and they say, "This is what I know." It's very difficult to say, "Oh, you're making that all up. It's a mythical creature." And you no, know. they don't know. Yes, they don't know mythical. You know, I mean, they're not watching the sci-fi shows and all that other stuff, right? They're out there no. living it. No, they are living in, and it's still part of their lives. You know, I when I go out and talk to my local tribe, you know, they they respect that I try very hard to keep this separate from my my what I do for a living because you know I don't ever want to be accused of abusing government time and stuff. And so yeah. usually what they say is, you know, the the meeting's done, and then they go, okay, we're off the record, and we all go, okay, and they go, okay, so what's going on with Bigfoot? We haven't seen him lately. You know, what's this? What's this? And I go, okay, this is what I know, and I just. Tell them what I know, what's been going on, and because they're still interested, and they're very much, um, well, for them, it's also an interest on um, how the world is going. You know, when Bigfoot sightings stop, it's really, really going to be bad. Bad. Ooh. Yeah, say, bad. say that again, Kathy. What did you just say? What, um, what? When a Native, I haven't yet met a tribe yet that doesn't believe that Bigfoot is a very, very important if you want to use the word indicator species or such an important part of who we are as an earth and as humans, that when Bigfoot sightings stop, that's bad. Wow. Okay. Really, really bad. And so they're always in, they don't necessarily want them hanging around with them, but they want to know he's still around right. and that he's doing what oh. he's supposed to be doing. And what he's supposed to be doing is different for each tribe, 
you know, every tribe has a different viewpoint of what his mission is, but as long as he's still around, things are good. That's a good That's indicator. extremely <laughs> fascinating. Wow. Well, with, with all of our listeners and researchers that are going out there, he's still around. He's yeah, still he's around. still around. But he moves, so, and, you know. Yeah, so, so you're working on some new stuff, right, with the um, Native Americans, some new research? Well, I've been working on... Um, Sort of uh, a better understanding the the native and human interaction. I mean, native and Bigfoot interaction. Like, you know, how common was it, and how different tribes um, deal with that. You know, was it? Um, did you instill fear into your kid early on to avoid this animal, or you know, how does that all come about? What what? How do you start out teaching, and is it very similar to how you teach a child about? If you see a bear, this is how you react. If you see a, a bobcat or a mountain lion, this is how you react. If you see a bigfoot, this is how you react. And so it's it's slow going in that sense, but I'm getting a lot of information that um, coincides with other information I've gathered over the years. And then with that, um, I'm also, I gather, you know, what are your traditional dances that you do? And do you have a bigfoot dance? Uh, bigfoot mm. Songs that they sing in in, in uh, uh, honor of Bigfoot, and I found out about a new one that I didn't know anything about. Um, that's very very close to me, and so in location, and so I'm working on getting into that and recording that data because um, Bigfoot or you know sacred things are not things typically ever really recorded because it's so sacred to the tribe they don't necessarily want it on paper or on a tape or video. And I've been very blessed with being allowed to do some of that. And so um, now that I have this new key where somebody felt very comfortable to tell me, um, I bet you didn't know this, and, and if you go talk to this person, they'll give you this information and this song that's related to Bigfoot, and he'll explain how this all fits. And and, and then with that also comes some areas where it's, it's quite um, – Confident, oh, no, that's the word I'm looking for. It's quite amazing that I have talked to at least 10 different Native American people from probably five different tribes, and they have all clued me into one particular location um, where they know he always is, that that's like the heart, the center of where they gather. And so that's, that's um, on my list of to-dos to go visit Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, Native people know an awful lot, and if they trust you, it's worth gathering that information. Now, Kathy, have you ever had a face-to-face sighting yourself? No. Oh, and you're working harder than anybody. You should have had well, one. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people working very hard. I've had my share. I've seen <laughs> footprints. I've seen footprints that I the, the, the pebbles were still rolling out of the footprints. Um, I've seen Broken trees, so incredibly fresh. The tree was still going bobbing. No, Bob, Bob, you know, before it was going to stand straight back up. It, it didn't quite get broke as good as it should have been. And that's kind of where I figured out that if Bigfoots do bend trees, they like to pretend like they're bigger than they are. So they'll reach up, pull it down, snap it, and then when it goes back up, it makes it look like they're 10 feet tall and they're really not. Um, ah. Yeah, they cheat. You know they cheat. <laughs> um, and I've seen, you know, I've heard many screams. Um, I've 
seen what I, I know I describe it as red eye glow and how you ever explain that I don't know. Um but I've never had a face to face. My husband has seen one at a distance and okay. my best friend has seen one within ten feet of her, but I, I've never experienced it. Wow. Now I have one more question that I just want to ask you a few questions. Sure. Um at what age do the Native Americans start teaching their children about Bigfoot? Like an approximate. Well, it seems to be uh, about four. That That's the general um, Native American. Well, and it's hard to tell because when I ask that question, I don't know sometimes if you mean four today or four is traditional because it's about when you're weaning them. Right. And Native Americans back in those days, of course, you wean them, you breastfeed them longer than what you would do nowadays. And but that's when your your verbal and um, everything comes together about that age. And what what I've been told so far, and it seems to be consistent, is what they tell them is, you're going to see these people, these other kind of people. Don't go with them. They're going to ask you to go with them, but don't go. Oh. They don't they don't dance like we do. And a wow. dance is the equivalent of saying I go to church. So they don't they don't practice the same religion as I do. Don't yeah, go with yeah. them, and so and and I've been told that now by a whole bunch of different people from all across the West. That's what they learned is just they're going to say, "Come with me," and you're going to go, "No, you're you don't you don't do the same things we do," and oh, that's as simple as that. That's amazing. What what do you think you would do if you ever had your face to face? Well, I've as I've told many people, always check my hands if I'm like not around anymore. I'm dead or something because. I'm going to grab a handful of hair. Would you try to communicate with them, though? Because you've had so much experience speaking with the Native Americans as to how to communicate with them. Um, You know what? When you're in that situation, nothing is going to be on my mind. It's going to go completely blank. (laughs) I'm going to panic. So that's what I practice. Reach out, grab hair, expect to be smacked, and that's just the way it is. And and that's fine. I want to look him in the eye. I'm going to eye to eye him. You know, that's fine. I'm going to be about the size of his belly button because I'm pretty short. <laughs> and I'm fine with it. That, that's all I want because I, I've, you know, I envy all those people that have had wonderful signings. You know, DW was just talking about what he, what he saw with the grass balls. Um, but in the end, if you don't have something to show for it, it's just right. another great story. And, and so I don't – I my my goal is to just prove he's real so he can be protected, you know, that we can get some real grant money from the government, you know, because they got all this money, to uh, study this animal and then figure out, you know, leave him alone, do this, do this, whatever. It's just, um, you know, I don't want to get to the point where I have to tell a tribe we haven't had a sighting in 10 years. I don't want to uh, be there. Yeah. Exactly. I can help it. Oh, you're awesome, Kathy. I think um, Jeff has some questions for you. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah, let me um, – we've got some new people that came in the chat room, so let me just reset. Uh, folks, you're listening to the Bigfoot Field Guide Radio Show, and tonight's guest is Kathy Strange. She's uh, the author of Giants, Cannibals, and Monsters, Bigfoot and Native Culture, which is uh, just came out, I believe, in June, didn't it, Kathy? Uh, no, it I think it was August of last year. Okay. Hard oh, to remember. I do not have my copy yet, but I know, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm just thrilled to death to be able to have you on our show tonight. I have listened to a number of your shows, and when I began to get back into the, um, the subject of Bigfoot, um, I, it was this show and your show that I was listening to 
just pretty much on a weekly basis. So I am just very excited to be able to speak with you and ask you some questions and because uh, I definitely consider you one of the foremost researchers uh, oh, presently in the subject. So the first thing that I would ask is, is I grew up in Oklahoma and I was exposed from a very early age um, in, in where I lived and in school to Native Americans. They were part of my culture growing up and, and we had Choctaw and Cherokee there in Oklahoma and some other ones and um, actually, my, my high school sweetheart from my senior year was, uh, was a Creek Indian, um, and so I had a lot of exposure uh, to that culture as well. And, I, you know, and, and like a lot of us, when I grew up in high school, I watched those movies and, and had an interest in the subject. And I remember asking one night, um, there may have been a movie that we watched, The, the Legend of Boggy Creek or something. Maybe there was a story on the news when I asked my, my uh, girlfriend's, mother, who um, still spoke full Creek um, and English, asked her about, you know, the existence of Bigfoot. And, and it was very matter-of-fact, and that's why I remember it, that she said, oh, yeah, they exist. And she did not go into it, Kathy, but it was just the way she said it, the very nonchalant manner. She kept doing whatever it was she was doing. She was preparing something in the kitchen. And, uh, you, of course, you're just sitting there, staring you know, I was sitting there waiting to hear more and she didn't say any more and you know I think the subject changed real quick but it was just very matter of fact and it was just understood uh, there in Easter Oklahoma, eastern Oklahoma that they existed um, and you know it seems as though in your book you've and in your research you've been able to, to interact with a lot of different Native American cultures on, on that side of the country has there been a number of uh, commonalities that you found. You know, I know that your interpretation and the way that they view these animals is different, and how they go about teaching each other. But is there a number of commonalities that you found in your interactions with the different Native American cultures that you're like, okay, that culture said the same thing, this one is saying this, and that matches. And is there things like that commonalities that you found in your research? Oh yeah, and and, and that's that's the one thing I just just a quick comment about. What I presented in the book are just the stories. I tried very, very hard outside of, you know, making uh, native words, you know, giving you what the, the English version of that is, not to interpret their stories because I absolutely hate that. When people go, well, this tribe says X, Y, Z, and then you just get a little snippet and you don't get the full story. You know, it's up for for the native people have said it's Bigfoot. It's up to you to read it and make your own conclusions you know it's not for me to tell you what they're saying because it's theirs it's their culture and oh yeah there's all kinds of similarities in fact one of the most common thing and and i get asked about this a lot is this motif of a bigfoot with a basket on its back and the bigfoot goes around and takes there's three different forms you take a child or many children and it's going back and eating that child, usually it's a female Bigfoot, and eating the, the kids like their food. Occasionally then you get a Bigfoot that will put a, uh, a, a child in its, its basket and take it home and raise that child as its own. And very good to the child, you know, raised it so much so the child felt very loved and didn't necessarily want to go back to its um, parents. Then you have the female Bigfoot who steals men puts them in their basket and then have them become their husbands. 
But it's what's unusual is that this Bigfoot with a basket on his back is pretty much coast to coast. I mean, it's just all over, the place and you're just like, what in the world? What what would perceive? What, what would cause a tri- tribe to believe that a Bigfoot first could weave a basket because they're very complicated? You know, they're objects. I, I, I tried to weave them myself and often not successful. But that it wears this basket on its back. And so when I've talked with people like Jeff Meldrum about, you know, what would cause them to think this is going on, and I think there's a couple pictures in the book about uh, that shows a, uh Indian woman from the uh, Pacific Northwest, British Columbia, where she has a basket on her back, and you see how stooped she is and how wide she looks. And Jeff theorized that likely what they're doing is seeing these Bigfoots, and they're so wide, they're so large, that for them to make sense of the absolute massive size of these things, well, it's obvious they have a basket on their back, and I just can't see the whole thing, but they surely they have that. And so I don't necessarily believe that Bigfoot eats little kids or necess- well, and I and I don't necessarily know what to even say about taking a husband because I've heard quite a bit of things about that. But I think that helps kind of explain who they are. If you have a kid that's missing and you can't explain it any other way, let's blame it on the big bad giant because it's you know, it's his fault and it just helps at least give you some kind of peace that there's some explanation to it. And so, you know, for, for the fact that all these tribes have similar stories, I don't see how that could be so widespread that, like, telephone, one tribe made it up in California and it somehow ended right. up in New York. That didn't make any sense when we didn't have the Internet or anything. And trade, although trade does occur, it's not as widespread as people like to make it sound. I mean, one time I think I saw somebody on the Internet had this, trade that people from Mexico were trading things with people in New York. Well, there's no evidence of that. We have nothing from Mexico any further except for some Paris and some copper that happened in the Mississippian area. That's it. There's nothing of that in California. We don't have artifacts from from California in Idaho or Idaho artifacts in California. It's ridiculous. They don't have that kind of trade route. And so even if they did trade with people, you're going to tell them a story you made up that's what you're going to do for an hour right. you're interacting with? I don't think so. That's Kathy, are you, I, I, the next question I would have is, um, in your conversations with some of the tribal elders and, and members of the tribe, is it your belief that these creatures are, are they animals, primates, or are they a type of people? Well, of course, to Native Americans, they're a type of people. They're just another tribe because they're the only other things that walk on two legs. So that's that's not even up for description, you know, up for uh, debate. So they do not put them in the same class as a coyote or a bear. They are an actual well, people. They, uh, they, you know, that's always a hard thing to answer because they <laughs> they don't necessarily. How to explain that. Well, what is your belief? I want to know what you think. Oh, I don't. I don't believe they're they're human in the sense of Homo okay. sapien at all. No, okay. I think they're they're innate species that we don't know anything about because, um, you know, there's no there's no. Uh, I, I mean, I think they're very smart, and I think you know, wadding up grass to annoy somebody on purpose is is uh, a, obviously a humorous curiosity to see how you're going to react, but I don't think that's 
an exception to just humans. I think other animals express that, especially in the ape family. You know, we could be wrong, and I, I would not be the least bit surprised that it ended up being a relic um, homo that we don't know anything about. That would not surprise me. But right now I don't see any characteristics of even along the line that we know when humans started using tools and how far back that goes. If if, if it had that capability, I think we would be seeing that. And so that's why I'm, I'm more lean towards ape, of, you know, not chimpanzee ape type, but, you know, a great ape that has obviously a lot of intelligence. Sure. Um you know, one of the one of the questions that that I always ask our guests, and and Sharon and and Darren know this, and so I, even though we're we're not at the end of the show yet, I want to ask you right now, based on your your research, you know, not only your um, your discussions with uh, the Native Americans, but just you being out in the in the woods and doing your research, your your interactions with the Monster Quest crews and the other researchers you've been with in California, how close do you think um, we are, and when I say we, I mean us as researchers, the group as a whole, to having you know, a, a, a major breakthrough in the existence of these animals? Um, I think we're very, very close. I think there are several, um, several areas of research that are very Close, and I don't know how to even say that without revealing stuff. You know, I, I understand. No, no, I understand. Yeah. I, no, I, I, and I think it's going to come through DNA first. I think okay. that's going to be the first thing that comes up, and and we have a lot of people who are willing to look at those um, DNA strands and kind of give us a feel from it from that. Um, but I, really close. I, I think what we've got going in the field and the interest, and in, and I just appreciate people so much that they just you know because it takes a lot of time. People who don't really know what Bigfooters are, how much time you spend away from your home, from your kids, from your family, um, when you could be doing so many other things that people really have a passion to figure this out. I do not think that the answer is going to come through recording wood knocks, unfortunately. Um, That's your own personal data, and I think it should be recorded so that you're documenting everything up to that point of when you do get a big breakthrough, you know, that kind of thing. Data is data, and you need to be recorded sure. to be scientific. But um, I, I used to think that the only thing that was going to matter was a full body, but I think we're at a point where at least a very good, uncontaminated DNA um, sample is really going to cause quite a stir and is going to open a lot of people's eyes, and, and a whole flurry of stuff is going to come out after that. And um, I, and I'm, I'm fortunate that I don't think at this time film, video, photos are going to do it because there's just so many people who are so good at Photoshop. No matter what you do, somebody's going to call it a hoax. Right. Yeah. I have uh, I have two questions um, for you, Kathy, and then I'll, I'll turn it back over to Sharon. The first question would be, um, what is your uh, take on the PG film, whether it's it's real or not. And the second question, I wanted to catch this question from the chat room because somebody had posted this earlier, and before I forget it, I wanted to pause uh, to get it in there as well. Have you learned anything new about the Tahoe scream? So those are the two questions, and then I'll I'll let you answer those, and I'll let Sharon get back to her questions. Okay. I completely think what we see in the PG film 
is real. There, I don't have any kind of doubts whatsoever. The way it moves, um, how it just flows in general, it, just as an anthropologist, it looks exactly what I would expect um, a Bigfoot to look. And I've talked with, I don't even know now, hundreds of witnesses who um, convey a, a, a similar thought. They always go, you know that thing on that film? Well, it moved exactly like that. Um, so I'm, I'm not... I don't have a doubt in my mind at all. And I've, I know Bob Gimlin very well, and I've spoken to him um, about the events of that day many times. And anybody who, look, who has stood and talked with him would come away with absolute no doubt in their mind whatsoever. Um, and as far as the Tahoe scream, I think that was Kite Squatch who asked that question, who I know ah, very you. well. Yes. Um, what uh, I think it was a Monster Quest last year had a gentleman from, um, I can't remember the university, but it was in Texas out of Houston. And my husband made fun of him because, of course, he's from Dallas. Um, but he had identified the call as being from an elk. And in our area of where that was recorded, we just don't have elk. You know, it would be an unfortunate event for a, a a lone elk who have wandered up there, which, of course, it can happen, but him to consistently make this call over a very long period of time because that's the only recording we have. And ah. through, through the help of Brian Brown, uh, we contacted the uh, Rocky Elk Foundation and had them listen to it, and they said, absolutely no way is this an elk. We also contacted, again, and this was the second time we had contacted the Cornell University um, and they agreed again that it was not an elk. And so I have no belief whatsoever that that is an elk. This is, you know, what it is, we don't know at, at right. all. And I don't, for, you know, I don't pretend Have you ever shown any of the, uh, the, the tribal elders or some of the, uh, the Indians you've interacted with, have you ever watched the PG film with them and gotten their reaction and had them say, oh, yeah, that's, that's a squatch? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, mostly, I mean, they're familiar with it. Most of the people um, who talk about Bigfoot with me freely, you know, on the, when I'm on land, they're sure. really familiar with it. And, and they, they know Bob is still around, and they often uh, express their appreciation and, and know what he's been through. I mean, they, they've gone through the same stuff themselves. They said, it's, you know, it's difficult when you have a different worldview than everybody around you, and so you just appreciate somebody who has just been utterly bashed and called names, and but yet has just stood like an oak, you know, for so many years. And and they say that about him all the time, you know, that give him our best wishes. And he, we just had the Yakima celebration in May, and Bob and I, my Bob, because um, you know anybody named Bob is cool, <laughs> but my my Bob and I had a uh, money clip made um, that has the hairy man symbol on it that a Miwok here locally, um, he wanted to do something special for Bob. And so it's his artistic um, rendition of hairy man for Bob Gimlin. And he was very honored to have done that because he knew Bob, you know, by legend. And he just said, you know, you know, how many of us can stand against 40 years of that and never come out swinging and, and yelling and screaming, you know, at some point you just want to yell, yeah, my hopes are just so people will just leave you alone. And yet he has stood, and oaks are so important to Native people. I mean, they always say that he stands like an oak. 
because that's in a windstorm or any kind of, of um, natural event, the oak is always going to stand. And so that's how they refer to them as. And have I you met any, that's, yeah, I was just going to say, have you met any Native American, um, maybe the younger men or women that are actual Sasquatch researchers? Um, not many. I know one or two at the most, and and I'm actually part Choctaw myself, but I wasn't ah. I wasn't raised Native, but I in, I knew a lot about different things, but nobody would ever admit it. It was during that time period where nobody wanted to be Indian, you know, and so um, but I knew a lot about Native medicines and how to use plants, but I didn't know you know why that was important at the time. Um, but I know one or two, and um, this this past weekend I actually talked to two uh, young ladies who are um, Indian who really expressed a desire to dive more into this and becoming a part and providing their point of view to the larger audience. And so I hope that they follow through. I caution them, though, about, you know, the Internet world sometimes isn't as um, – gentle and um, open to what you have to say. And so you have to make some choices in that. You know, do you really want to share everything you know? Or, you know, maybe that's not necessarily the best avenue for you. But we'll see. I'm I'm going to mentor them and see um, where they want to go with this. But they they certainly had a passion. And they truly believe that um, people who are hairy man, uh, not shaman is not the right word, but who have been chosen to speak for him, I guess, or represent him, are chosen through that a process of dreams and being selected. And both of them had felt that it was so important to them so, from such a very early age that maybe that was their meaning in life, was to, to present the Native view of this to the, the greater audience. And so we'll see. Wow. We'll see. Very good. Uh, Darren, I'm I'm not able to see the chat rooms or anything. Are there any other questions that we haven't addressed for Kathy? Uh, no, the chat room pretty much froze up. <laughs> oh, everything froze up, huh? Oh, bummer. <laughs> Kathy, I swear I could sit here and listen to you for hours. I, I'd like to sit across from a campfire and just listen to you talk. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. You're awesome. I appreciate you coming on. You've been a wonderful guest. And uh, anytime you want to come back and speak with us, if you've got anything new going on, Feel free to just email me or Facebook me or whatever. You're <laughs> Facebook awesome. Facebook has become a verb. I love that. Facebook me. No doubt, no doubt. And you got your your sons in school now, so you're going to be pretty busy this uh, October. This yeah, fall. unfortunately, I had been scheduled to come to speak at the the festival, but I unfortunately I have a senior who um, is going to be occupying a lot of my time. And so, um, you know, and, I've, and he's given up a lot in exchange for me traveling and writing the book and everything. And so this is his year to be a senior and me, you know, do whatever it is he needs me to do. And if things change, then um, DW said I'm welcome to come out. And But I'm really hoping to make it next year when when he's uh, college and maybe out of the house. <laughs> well, Jeff wants to have a Kathy Strain part two, so we'll be in contact with you in the future. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I was just uh, I was sitting there thinking we need to definitely have Kathy on again and have a part two because I just want to echo what you say, Sharon. Um, just you know we can't cover the amount of knowledge and information that that Kathy has researched. I mean I 
just from talking to a researcher that actually owns the book and has read it, I, I, I shudder to think how much time it took for you to put into that book. And that book could be an entire show, and your research could be an entire show. So absolutely, I'd, if you're willing to do it, we'd love to have at some point a Kathy Strain Part 2. So oh, it's anytime. Just, it's anytime. amazing. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I, I, I try to – I mean, my only goal – for the book and for what I do is just to make sure that these things aren't lost and forgotten because stories um, that you see in the book, they're meant to be told. That's part of what they are. They're a living history, and they're, they need to be read. They need to be talked about in order for them to survive, and, and that's all it's about. It's about making sure that we don't lose this because in 100 years when Bigfoot is well-known and he's walking around the streets right. of Manhattan in his suit <laughs> – he can say, oh, yeah, look at my beginnings. You know, that, that's what's important to me. Exactly. When we, when we can say, we, we told you so. <laughs> yeah, we told you so. We told you so. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of a little bit of that where then, you know, Native people can go, that's right, we already knew. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> thank you for catching up with the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Kathy. You've been an awesome guest. I loved it. I, I, I was just sitting there speechless. I was just hanging on every word you were saying. I swear to God, I was just you know, listen to every word. Oh, I could well, do that for hours. I have to listen to myself and see what I said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always like that. I always have to go back and listen too. <laughs> oh, I can't believe I said that. No, <laughs> no well, I just, I just really have an interest. So that that's all I'm trying that's to. Cool. And that is so fascinating that you can tie your interest in with your career. That's fortunate, and that and that's always gets down to what I like told these people, and I tell my kids. Love what you do and do what you love because otherwise, you know, what's the point? What's the point? Yeah, live, we die. But you're, you're, you're living the dream, and we're all envious of you, and we all respect you very much, and I appreciate you coming on the show tonight. Thank you oh. very much. Well, thank you for having me. All thank right. You thank you so much, Kathy. All right. All right. Well, Darren, I'm not sure if you have the outro music or anything, but. Yeah, actually I do. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us for this evening's edition of the Bigfoot Field Guide Radio Show. I'm Sharon Lee along with Jeff Stevens. And, oh, my dog just went crazy. And uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Good night, everybody.
Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.